Hello, welcome to Science Shambles. Uh, if you want to go onto the cosmicshambles.com site and have a look for some of the recent science blogs, you might particularly enjoy Dean Burnett's recent one about the reporting of the male-female brain differences. Uh, it is written very passionately. Anyway, here is today's episode of Science Shambles. Yes, I'd l- I lose. Tra- I thought you'd been doing that. Yeah, for ages. I normally do I've about two or three. Yeah, and then there's and the then, book and everything. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah ridiculous mm. in it. Um, the uh, yeah, sorry. You're, so anyway, well, welcome to Science Shambles, and uh, joined by now you prefer Sammy Buzzard. Can I just check? Yes, yeah, Sammy Buzzard and Helen Chersky, uh, both uh, at University College London. Um, we'll start off by Helen. The last time that you were in here was before, just before I think you were about to go out to uh, the Arctic and um, you spent what? Is it two and a half months? There? Two months. Two months yeah. there. And I came back and I survived and I didn't get eaten by a polar bear. So that's well, a Well, this win. is, you, you wrote quite a few you know, blog posts about it when you got, you got the chance you could get them sent. And this is, can you give a little bit of a sense of the change of experience? You know, you are based right in the heart of London, University College, an incredible per- perpetual hubbub. How much do you see a psychological change once you're on that icebreaker and then you, you, you get to that first destination? So the hard thing is not going there. It's actually coming back. You turn up and... There's some new people to meet and you get used to the ship, which is, it's quite, it was quite a big ship, over 100 metres long. But still, there were 70 people on it, 74, 40 of whom were scientists, 30 were, you know, did logistics and mechanics and kept the ship going, all that kind of thing. And so initially, there's lots of new people to meet and the, you know what you've got to do. Most people have been to sea before. So there's this kind of familiarity of like, here we are. It's almost like at the beginning of a film when there's that moment when the, the old gang are getting together and everyone walks in, there's a kind of little nod and then the, the, the other familiar one walks in and they all go oh he's here so there's a bit of that and 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 you just right from the start you're just working together by habit very intuitively but the hard bit comes at the end because you get used to your little steel village and you you know pretty much where everyone is and there's different groups on the ship but you're all working together and you talk you talk to people in a different way because you've only got each other right so you can't kind of outsource looking after people or worrying people if some if something's gone wrong you've got to you've got to ask, ask that person you've got to check because there's nobody else to check mm-hmm. so you're kind of like checking in with people in a low key way all the time and then you come back and everyone says oh what's it like to be back in civilization and you say oh it's not very civilized is it because no one talks to each other and, and I've missed my friends from the ship and, and there's a million things to do and there's the internet and Donald Trump still exists and can I go back to the North Pole, please? And, and it, it's really hard coming back and it was for everybody. So does that, I mean, what you're saying there to me to some extent is, you know, Robin Dunbar with the famous Dunbar number, which is we can only have 150 uh, relationships and that means literally every form of relationship, not just friends, That that's how... That's how big the tribe and those we'll bump into are. So does that give you a sense that, in fact, it's more natural when you're there and that when you're thrown back in the urban environment, this is perhaps one of the reasons that we have, you know, some of the, some of the psychological problems that, that, that we see to have this amount of exchange and this number of people? Yes, and it's just very complicated. And on one hand, I feel, you know, I've only I've lived in London for five years and before that I moved every couple of years and it took a couple of years in London before I really had friends here that I saw regularly, you know, and then I felt so fortunate to have so many friends because I'd spent so long just kind of doing things. 
And then I'm still fortunate to have lots of friends, but I can't keep up with them anymore and mm. there's too much going on. And it's just tiring. And what's t most tiring about it is that it's all mediated by devices you have to look at. Uh, one of the interesting things about the ship was that there were these phones, like these little old Nokia phones from 15 years ago, quite literally, like they were just old, old school phones. Couldn't text anybody really. And so you have to call people. And you would not find, not be able to find someone on the ship because it's big enough that you, you know, can't. And then you'd phone them and say, "Oh, right, uh, where are you? I need to talk to you about this." And you'd either sort about it on the phone, or you then you'd, you'd go and find them. And even the PhD students, you know, who've more than everyone else have lived lived mediated by text, got used to talking to people. And that was one of the that was you had to f look people in the eye and have a conversation. Mm. And um, so you could have a proper relationship with, in the sense that you could see how they were reacting and you could see how that fitted in with the context. And um, yeah, so so it was like that sort of Dunbar, you know, picture of tribe size. It really was. 70 people on a ship is getting pretty close to the, the tribal size. And um, yeah, and so I'm trying to bring bits of it back into my normal life, and it's because it's hard because everyone just lives. It's it's not the um, it's not what you, it's not the phone. It's the looking at the screen that mm. takes people's eye contact away. And it's weird because you know you think of the wilderness as being this terrible place where, um, you know, you're far from civilization. It's difficult and it's harsh. And actually, of course, what humans do is they go to the wilderness and they rebuild a bubble. They start again, and you can build it differently. So, Sammy, what's your which particular area are you working on at the moment in terms of research? So, at the moment, Arctic sea ice. So, I've not been fortunate enough to be on a ship like Helen has, but I have been up to the Arctic a couple of times and had the chance to be out there on the ice and had a similar experience. Actually, it's very strange coming back to London. And what the? I mean, from my very slight knowledge, you know, part of the the, the major use of this is to discover the change in our atmosphere uh, through ice samples. So, I mean, is it like? The equivalent of when you're going through an ice sample, something like the Rift Valley, where you have, as I think, I can't remember who once described the Rift Valley as a time machine. You see this slide and then you look down and you go back in time and you see evolution. You see the different samples. It, in some ways, is, is that when you when you go through an ice sample, is that a similar sense of a time machine? Yeah, you can get some really cool stuff out of ice cores. So you can go back thousands and thousands of years and you can see especially layers. So if there's been a big volcanic eruption, there'll actually be like a little black layer within the ice core. So you can match that up. That's one of the ways we tell how old they are. So it is, yeah, crazy. But there's two different t there's two different things going on here, actually, two different types of timescale, because the sort of samples you're talking about are glacial ice. So that's ice that's built up over thousands of years on land, and then it's kind of slid into the ocean. And, some, you know, you can either take cores on land or in the ocean. But the sea ice that, that Sammy's talking about, one of the things that people don't talk about when they talk about the Arctic is, is how dynamic it is. It's constantly changing. And now, you know, and, and Sammy will know more about this than me, you know, we're mostly... There used to be a lot of multi-year ice, which lasted year after year, and it could build up, you know, five metres thick, and it, it could last for tens of years before it got chucked out, you know, pushed out of the Arctic Ocean into some warmer sea and it would melt. But now that timeline has become very short. You know, ice grows over Russia, it travels, it might last, you know, three or four or five years, it doesn't get as thick, and, and then it's pushed out the other side and it melts. And so what used to be a repository of, you know, maybe tens of years of data the sea ice is now it, it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes and it it's much more uh, it's less permanent than it used to be right? yeah a lot of it will be kind of stuff that's just frozen up this year and then will melt out in the summer and potentially refreeze the next year 
So with sea ice, we aren't as lucky as the big kind of land ice ice, ice cores you can get. There's not so much kind of timeline information we can get. And how vital is this for... I mean, we, we, we should talk a lot about this, really, because there's just not enough out there even now. But when we are monitoring the the, the change in, in, in climate and the actions of, of humanity, the Anthropocene such, then... Um, yeah, what are because we hear so many anecdotes from those who are fighting against the, a lot of the build-up of evidence. And, you know, things like, well, the expanse of ice. Look, I've got this aerial picture. It's even bigger than it was last year. What are they talking about? You know, there's a lot of. What are the best counters to some of? I mean, I'm sure there are arguments that get thrown at you all the time, Helen, and and also something. I'd, I'd be very interested to know, you know, to give people listening to this the resources so they can use uh, a, a effective and trustworthy um, evidence-based information. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there. So, for example, the NSIDC National Snow and Ice Data Centre, I think, in the US, publish every year the overall sea ice extent. And if you just Google NSIDC sea ice, this is the first plot that will come up. You will see a graph of the sea ice and how it has changed over time. And when you compare what we have now to 20, 30 years ago, those changes, you just can't argue with it. It's such an obvious decline that you can just see the sheer amount that's been lost. There's also something important relating to Sammy's specific work, actually, which is those maps, which are very easy to understand, are about extent. But what Sammy's working on is thickness. And that that's a much bigger story, which isn't told as often. And, and I think you should, you should yeah. tell it. Yeah, no, that's something we're still trying to get more of a handle on. So it's quite easy, well, easy-ish to see from satellites how much ice there is, how much of the ocean is covered by ice. But knowing how thick that ice is is a different challenge. And that links back to what Helen was saying before, that some of the ice is quite old, so that will be thicker, and some of it is quite new. So if you don't know how thick the ice is, we could have loads and loads of really thin ice, or we could actually have lots of nice thick ice that's quite kind of stable and isn't going to melt with the change in season. So we need to try and work that out, and that's something myself and a lot of colleagues are working on at the moment. What do you find are the most useful stories? Because that's part of it. It's it's something I, th- I think we've probably talked about. I don't know if it's on air or not, but Cape Farewell, which was you know taking people out uh, to the Arctic, and they would take also storytellers and artists, and they would mix with the scientists, and then they would react to what they'd seen. And I, I remember when I did a thing, I think at the uh, Edinburgh Botanic Garden, where one of the things they had was looking at the change in the density of uh, a particular mollusk shell, uh, where seeing that in the fossil record this had been the same it had had remained constant for millions and millions of years and then there is the point where the increase in acidity in the ocean there's a sudden a sudden change which just general grades of of evolution would not have predicted in in any way so those kind of stories because that does seem to be that's what we need don't we there's how and and it's a disappointing thing where you know Brian Cox not that long ago I remember arguing with him about something he went think if you show people the evidence then they'll come to the right <laughs> conclusion and of course it, it it has to be attached to a story though, doesn't it so I wonder Sammy do you find there are particular stories where you go this this is a good way in for people to get a greater understanding of the challenges ahead yeah I think there's one number especially that tends to shock people a bit when I tell them so this is related more to land ice than sea ice so the ice that's on top of Antarctica or Greenland there was a study done a few years back that estimated I think between 2005 and 10 roughly the amount of ice that was lost from the land into the ocean was about 414 pyramids of Giza per day during that time and that is something like everyone can imagine how big a pyramid is then more than 400 of those going into the ocean every day. It's kind of crazy that that's like the levels of change that we can be having. 
There's also stories around the experiences of explorers. So one of the, the things that has always struck me is that if you read back, even 100 years ago, you know, the first people trying to reach the North Pole, because it, it's, it's closer than the South Pole, so obviously a lot of Norwegians and Brits and others tried to go there first. And if you read back those historical stories, all of them talk about ice that is at least five metres thick. Like, universally. And even the older scientists that we know that we go to see with, you know, they remember, you, you know, measuring ice that is five, at least five metres thick, multi-year ice. And now there's almost none of that. You know, the average ice thickness in the Arctic Ocean, depending on the season, you know, in the summer, the multi-year ice is perhaps one and a half or two metres thick. Right. So you have this in a five metres thick. Is it, if you think about, you know, if your local swimming pool has a diving board, one of the high platforms, that's five metres high. That's a huge thickness of ice, like this lid on the Arctic Ocean. And two metres, you know, that's less than that's my height, basically less than, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit less than that. And and that's an enormous amount within a human lifetime to have lost. And I think, so there are the human stories of how the ice affects humans and how, you know, the hunting grounds have decreased and the, the bears are moving away and, the, the you know, polar bears are starting to mate with North American black bears or brown bears. I can never remember which one they're related to. Um, you know, there's all of those stories. And then there's just this physical idea that when people went to the North Pole for the first time, there was an enormous amount of ice. And 100 years later, there isn't, you know, the, it's just not there. I, we, we were at the North Pole this summer and um, obviously it's, it's covered in melt ponds, but there are, the ice is thin mm. compared with how it was. And you would never see that on a photograph, but you stand in the middle of it and you imagine how much higher the ice would stand. And you look out over this enormous expanse and think as far as I could see, there would be three metres more ice and it's just not there. And I think, so it's not a human story, but I think there are mental pictures like that, that, you know, sea ice that's five metres thick is an amazing concept to me and there is almost none of it left. Sammy, if you were the first time you, you you went to the Arctic, what do you do? You remember that sense? I mean, I remember what, what what age were you when you first started thinking this this is the field that you want to go into. This is the. Uh... Um, I'm not quite sure. I remember watching Frozen Planet with David Attenborough. Was the time where I was like, okay, this is really exciting. I want to be in this area. But the first time I was in the Arctic, I was maybe 25, 26, and that's the point. It's just a whole different world and once you get there you're like this yeah I love this I need to keep coming back here and I want to do this and which region were you in um, I was in Svalbard so which is most people's there. entry point to the Arctic actually yeah I've been quite uh, lucky that my trips up there I've been purely on the land so I've had actually a very easy time a lot of sun no really horrendous storms and just doing nice stuff on the land that's not so, what is that where the seed bank no. Yes, it yes, is. yes. Yeah, it is. In London, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. in Svalbard. Um, so, what, and again, how much has that being able to actually start experiencing this? How much does that change the way that you view the Earth as a whole? I mean, because I presume that seeing something that is so alien to, to many people in it, a different sense to the way that when you know those on the ISS look back at the planet Earth, but that changes perspective. And I imagine that to change environment so much does give you a different perspective. That you, when you leave the planet and the universe look a little bit different? Yeah, there's definitely something about being up there. Everything is just a bit more calm and peaceful and cut off. And you just think, this is a really nice place. We don't want this to change. But it's also something about the timelessness of it, because the one of the things that really struck me, actually, when I came back this time, is that we hear a lot about the Arctic changing, but we don't hear anything about how it is. 
you know, and people, it's sort of, it's really frustrating in a way that people are talking about change, but they don't know what it is, the original thing. And and what it is, is, is dynamic in a really slow way. It's so you stand on the ice and it does feel timeless, but then you look carefully and everything is changing. Ice flows are moving very, very slowly. And occasionally they'll bump into each other and something quite dramatic happens and, you know, things break. But um, you sort of have to shift your time scale to watch it because everything... It's like... Um, it's one of those things... That, so I once filmed with alligators, which I don't recommend to anybody. <laughs> They're ambush predators. And I had to do a piece to camera, you know, talk to the camera, and there was an alligator behind me, right? And every time we'd do a bit, and then I'd look around at the alligator, and I'd do another bit, and I'd look around at the alligator. And I never saw that thing move. But every time I looked around, it was closer to me, right? And there's a thing about Arctic sea ice, which without the teeth is a bit like that. Like, you never see anything move. But every time you look, it looks slightly different. <laughs> and it's all moving. And something about this idea of things, that this environment, which is, it's there now, right? The thing we're describing is there right now. It's just getting dark. The surface, there'll be no open water anywhere. It's almost completely frozen over. So there'll be a bit less movement. Snow's piling up. There are ridges forming as ice gets pushed into other ice. It's there now, an entire ocean covered in ice. And it's quiet there and it's moving and it's that sort of sense of the type of environment that this is that I don't think anyone ever really talks about because when you watch TV programs there's a bear or there's a dramatic thing happening or there's a you know it, you have to make it look like something's happening but when you're there what dominates is this moving without moving thing an entire shifting ocean but you never see it move and there's a fascination in that as a, and a sort of idea of planetary scales, you know, and how slowly the planet changes at the same time as moving quite quickly. You know, it's like our brains and our lifetimes are not quite the right time scale to see it. And you can almost see it. You can't quite get there. So you just have to stare. Yeah, it's the same with the ice on the land, actually, but even in a kind of slower way you see pictures and images of like glaciers and huge chunks falling off them but actually when you're there they're still moving just really really slowly you can hear them kind of creaking and occasionally the ice cracks a bit so you know it is doing something even if you can't quite see it and glaciers but, are amazing because yeah. they rumble yes yeah some of like the noises that come deep, out of them are... deep noise mm. and it, so you can sort of tell it's 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 not passive it's not innocent but it, you can't see, you can't see the power behind it. So there's all this stuff about forces and, and, you know, humans being very vulnerable in the face of these forces. So, you know, at the end of our expedition this summer, we woke up on the last morning. Uh, we had some big bits of equipment to clear up that were floating in the water. And I went down to my colleague, we were all ready to go. And he was like, it's gone. I said, what do you mean it's gone? He said, it's, the bear patrol went out this morning, it's gone. And overnight, in the course of nine hours, an, an ice flow, a nearby... So on the site we had been working up for five weeks, a nearby ice flow had just come along and had just taken off the entire corner, and there was nothing. And after a couple of hours of searching, they found some boxes in the rubble, you know, somewhere at ice rubble somewhere else, and it had just gone. And on one hand, you know, you desperately want to see that happen. Like, how we were only over there in the ship, you know, nobody saw anything. And, of course, you've lost a lot of equipment and... Um, but it, by that time, it was the, if it had happened on the second day, it would have been a problem, but it was the end, so we could laugh about it. But this, like, there could have been a person there, 
right? The, the early explorers, you know, trying to get to the North Pole. If you go in the winter, it's, it's genuinely horrid and it's dark all the time. If you go in the summer, it's all moving and, and things like that happen. Mm. Cracks open up and come and go. And um, I tell you what, the people who went to tried to get to the North Pole were a lot more bonkers, in my opinion, than the people who tried to get to the South Pole. Because at least at the South Pole, you just have to walk that way. You know, and yes, there are mountain ranges and there's wind in your face and all of this stuff. It's not very nice. However, walking across a flat-ish cold landscape is a whole different game to walking across an ocean that is just moving slightly too slowly to see. You know, it, it's there's all this, like, it can be very dangerous for humans. And as a, as a human being in the middle of it, you're exceptionally vulnerable. And it's so easy to forget that. Like, we live in this nice controllable world. And we think we're in charge. Of course we're not in charge. We've just built a little, like, you know, wall around our life that makes it sound, that makes gives us the illusion that we're in control. And I think, frankly, it would be good for humans if occasionally they remembered we weren't. So is that, I mean, is it this, uh, talking about this with Josie earlier, about that, that whole kind of uh, gated community uh, psychology that we see amongst the very rich, and there's talk of those who are having bunkers built in New Zealand for their... But, but that we have in, in, in urban society, etc., we are in a much bigger scale in a kind of gated community which is away from the actions of nature. And that have do, do you feel, Sammy, that there's the, the level of human arrogance now in terms of that we can control, considering we're such a small planet in a very, very big, well, very big Milky Way in an enormous universe. If I go, oh, no, no, we'll be fine. We can, we can handle this. Is that part of the psychological battle to make people become more aware that there may not be a miracle cure and that that idea that, oh, don't worry, the scientists will come up with something eventually. We'll keep doing what we do and then they'll, they'll invent a magic box or something. Yeah, definitely. I think certainly most of my friends are just assuming that something will happen. We'll put mirrors in space because you always hear about it's called geoengineering, changing the planet to try and prevent warming. Um, you hear a lot about it, but I don't think people realise actually how complicated and far off those things are. And what a political nightmare there'd be if we were saying putting particles into the atmosphere to reflect energy back to the sun. That's maybe going to cool the planet as a whole, but some places will be a lot worse off and we don't necessarily know which places those will be. So even if we have the technology, it's a big moral dilemma if we can even use it. And none of it's proven. No. All of that solar geoengineering. It's the thing, you can't, you can't test ideas. that when the lab is um, our planet. Then. But it's, it's, it's funny because the, the first side of the story is that we have changed the planet measurably uh, and... And it's funny that it's it's, curious, it's a curious thing about the human mind that it would be easier to change it again in a different way than it would be to stop the changing we're doing at the moment. You know, humans like change, apparently. They want to do new things. And it's far more interesting. There's that kind of mental thing that's far more interesting to do a new thing than it is to stop doing something you've done before. It's like it always being interesting to, um, you know, tidy someone else's house. It's never a problem to help someone else tidy up their garage, right? No one ever tidies up their own. It's like that It's that distraction so easily. And it feels like geoengineering and that kind of thing. There's this, it's just like, where's the next distraction? We've heard, we know about that problem, whatever. We, we don't, we want a new thing. Where's the new thing? And, and part of the problem is looking back and going, well, maybe we've only got one planet and we've, we're going to run out of new things. At least on, we're going to run out of new places to put things and places to dig. Um, but I think it's healthy to have some... Um, you know, so I, last time I talked to you, I think Kemakea was with me and the Hawaiians mm. have this attitude that 
they think in terms of islands and you live on a little island and that means you have to pay a bit more attention to people like we did on the ship because you've just got what you've got on your island. And I think this is the century. I mean, it was labelled as the century of biotechnology that people said the 20th century is a century of physics, the 21st is a century of biology. I actually think that the 21st century is the century of realising that Earth is finite and dealing with psychologically with being an island. Because if you think this is all you've got, I think your attitude to it changes quite a lot. Because then you can do two things. You can fight over it or you can work as a team to look after your island. And it's a very clear binary choice, pretty much. And the Arctic Ocean is going to be our... That's going to be the test for humanity. Are we going to fight over it? Or are we going to work together to to manage the changes? Because, you know, there's Russia's planted its flag on the floor there, the under the North Pole. Um all the Arctic nations, I mean, as the sea ice opens up, you open up New Sea, you can send ships there, you can send ships over the top, uh, planes over the top. You can, you've got a new ocean for the first time, right? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to treat it like a shared resource or are you going to beat each other with sticks to see who gets to be king of the thing, you know, king of the sea? And I don't know, my optimism on that question varies from day to day. <laughs> I mean, it can be done, though. We manage it with Antarctica. There's the Antarctic Treaty. Virtually, like, most of the countries in the world have signed it. No one's going to go there and exploit it. It's just for science and a few tourists. And it works. Maybe because it's a bit further away and more difficult to get to and there's less chance of oil that people know will be there. Well, is that but part of the thing? it works at the moment. If it can be monetized, mm. then that's... It, it seems that... Uh, I, I, I hope, you know, I know I realize this is cynical, but... If there was a way of making a large amount of money from the Antarctic, or maybe there is, I don't know, but uh, th- that treaty would be, yeah, <laughs> we found all the secret gold and oil and jewels. <laughs> Shush. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder that, that that's, uh, treaties are made when you actually go, oh, it's fine, because there's, there's nothing there anyway. That's why, you know, in the same way where wars, you know, I remember I think the first Gulf War where one of the members of the White House said, Let, let's face it, if, if we were fighting over a carrot-growing country, if that was its dominant industry, then we wouldn't be there. But I think it's a positive thing. I think the psychological change necessary is a positive thing because uh, the world is, as we've said, a very grumpy place at the moment. And uh, part of that is that people don't feel anyone else cares about them and they don't feel part of a community and they don't feel... So I don't see this... I actually... I think that there might be a lesson to learn which might make humanity better, which is that once you've got your island, this is what we've got, then you have to start actually caring about other people because they're not going away. You know, there's there's a limit. And I think there's a really positive thing, you know, and this feeds into the mental health stuff that you've done so much about recently is that all of that loneliness and feeling ignored and recognition, that acknowledgement and all of those things, uh, some of that comes from the way modern society is structured. And if we do that better, then everyone's happy, right? So it's like I think a lot of these changes aren't, oh, you're not allowed to have the thing, you know, you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that and it's all very hair shirt and everyone's going to get told off. Actually, it's just maybe this is just making society a better place. And, you know, there's, there's a great cartoon that I can't remember who drew of um, someone standing up at a climate change conference and, and they say, oh, the things that will happen if we solve climate change, you know, it's like uh, local energy sources and homegrown everything. And, and someone in the audience puts their hands up and says, but, but what if climate change is a, a hoax and we make a better world for nothing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, tell me, what area are you, uh, in terms of um, research that's coming up, what excites you most 
what, what, what are the challenges you are uh, most keen to kind of grasp? Well, at the moment, we're just still trying to get a good handle on how much ice we actually have in the Arctic. We have some estimates, but we think we can make them a lot better. And that will tell us a lot more about how much the Arctic is actually changing and how vulnerable it will be in the future. Because um, just trying to work out if we have lots of that ice that's been there for many years or just for a few years, just trying to work out how much there is and how thick it is, is something that's a really ongoing area of research and one which, yeah, I'm pretty happy to be in at the moment. So. And where, where's a good place for people to start finding out more generally as well? People who want to, obviously, Cosmic Shambles Science blog posts, <laughs> which uh, hopefully, Sammy, we'll, we'll have one for you soon. Sure. Good. And then <laughs> yeah, that's how uh, we no get people to do yeah. things. <laughs> yes, that was said on air. <laughs> it was said on air. And the, uh, for those listening who don't know, it's basically when, when the Guardian Science blogs shut down, we decided to try and lure everyone and more over because this seems like a, a bad time to stop uh, mass communication of, of science. Not a good one. Um, and Helen wrote uh, some very interesting uh, pieces. Uh, well, continues to write them, but, but when she was out there as well uh, in the Arctic. But um, yeah, what, what, what are the, the good starting points in terms of things like you know books that people might want to read just to get them again to give them a sense of this territory which is both so near and as you said at times so very alien as well well i'm, I'm currently in the process of starting to write one so much, yeah <laughs> uh yes but there aren't very many i mean there have been some so peter wadham's wrote a book called farewell to ice for example and and he's a very experienced polar scientist and he writes very clearly about the effect that ice has on the rest of the world so there's there's things there's a few books like that but there are not very many and the arctic the polar regions do suffer from this uh sort of exposure problem in that there's all the great heroic adventurers hooray for shackleton and scott and you know being miserable a hundred years ago in a very cold place staring at a penguin um but then there's there's a lot less about what's happening now partly because it all sounds a bit miserable mm. and i think there's yeah, a, you know we need to fill to the gap so many books that are just everything is really bad and um, but if people are generally interested in kind of climate science then there are a huge amount of resources on the internet especially written by climate scientists i think that's the key thing because there's also a lot of resources out there that are a lot of rubbish and um, but definitely so colleagues for example from the department of meteorology in reading where i used to work there are lots of really good climate scientists there who write blogs um, the British and British Antarctic Survey, going on. yes, good, they've got good blog also got nice blogs. Um, so people actually go there and have seen these changes and work on the science and know what's happening and write really well about it so anyone can read it. I remember Simon Singh was very... I, I read the book as well. I don't know whether updates are required or not, but the that book, What's the Worst That Could Happen, which was the, uh, oh, yeah. the teacher who did a little project yes. with his students, and, and that one was kind I, of, in some ways, philosophical as well, about let's have a look, what, what if, what if, what if, let's just put this together, and then at the end we might find some conclusions. Yeah, and actually there is one of the... It's, in a very odd way, one of the best places to look for solid information is one of the places you would never normally look because it sounds terrifically dull, and that is the Lloyd's Register risk reports. So they are they, they insure the insurers, right? They have a lot of interest in what insurance claims are going to be coming their way, and they write this superb series of very readable reports on all kinds of subjects, on you know water risk and uh, solar, you know solar storms and stuff like that, and and they've got a few on climate risk and you know particularly the increased chances of uh, more severe storms, which is one of the climate change predictions that as the Earth warms, you get. Uh, 
more regular storms and they're more violent when they happen. Uh, and it, they're just very clear. So if, if you don't, if you if you can do without the story and the narrative, and you just want a very clear picture of what's going on, those reports are actually amazingly good. And you know, there are a few. Each one is kind of eight to ten pages. And they summarise very well. And the thing is, they're written by people who frankly don't give a damn. That that you know, they they're the ultimate in. Um, they're not they're not political. They don't have any ideological anything. They are just interested in what is going to cost them money in the next twenty years. And so they've written very even-handed reports that backed up by very solid evidence. And and those, I think, convince even the people who, might, you know, who, who might not, who might, you know, all oh, the scientists, they just want more money to do research or all these people just, they've all got, you know, they're too interested. The insurers are not in that category. And I think they're some of the most powerful pieces of writing out there because of that. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much. You can still get Helen's uh, uh, first book, which is a beautiful book all about uh, basically how you can uh, confront physics as you make your cup of coffee. Yes. Or tea. Or uh, tea. Or and I wrote, hot I wrote a Ladybird book on bubbles as well. Oh, have you? Is that Ladybird out now? Expert book. Yeah, it came oh, out a couple of weeks ago. Yet. No, oh, I, it was because I forgot to show it to you. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So new, they're, they're great, those. The one on consciousness, we did some of the, there's, some of the illustrations in those oh, books amazing. are absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So, Sammy and Helen, thank you very much. Uh, if you go to cosmicshambles.com, you'll find uh, an enormous number, uh, an increasing number of uh, science blogs and uh, short uh, films by, amongst others, Matt Parker, and you'll also find all the book shambles, etc. Thank you very much, Sam and Helen. Thank you very much for listening and you can read Sammy's blog on the website now about sea ice and also uh, obviously all Helen's Arctic blogs and her shambles advent if you've not checked that out where each day throughout advent in December we had people just tweet us and tweet Helen with mundane pictures of their everyday life and then Helen picked out some interesting hidden science in those pictures so all of those are available online now cosmicshambles.com slash blogs and none of that or this podcast or any of the stuff that we do would be possible without your support so patreon.com slash bookshambles if you'd like to pledge support for what we create as little as a dollar a month lots of rewards on there as well so do check that out Thanks again, and we'll be back with more science shambles and book shambles and blogs soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.